Shop all things Cherry Johnson at therealcherry.com. Welcome to Cherry's World Podcast. I am Cherry Johnson. My co-host is Mr. Courtney Blackman. And today we will be talking to a lifelong friend of mine. Well, kind of. Her name is Amy Broadneck. And Amy found out the hard way what it was like to grow up as a ward of the court and to do two separate bids in juvenile detention centers in Texas. I need to let you know that today's content is for mature audiences only. So if you have little ones, you might want to pause or send them one out of the room or come back to us later. But if you have teenage daughters, you definitely would like to sit them down and watch this show with them because it's all about what happens when you have the wrong friends and how you can get caught up and become guilty by association and end up with a life that you could never even have a nightmare about. So, grab a seat and get ready, because this show is heavy. The only podcast coming through your beat stereo is Cherry's World, so let's go around like a merry-go. Plug your phone in, make sure it got a full battery. Download it Wednesday, listen to it Saturday. She cover all topics, whatever you after. She got ball players, authors, doctors, actors, rappers, singers, entrepreneurs, divas, leaders, androids or Apple, turn up your speakers. Trying to shoot my shot like the vaccine, whether it's Cherry or Maxine, whether the podcast or acting, she that queen. PYT, you know what that mean. Saw you on TV and touch the screen, touch on you. I plead Lucy has got a crush on you. It'll mean the world to get a blush from you. Teaspoon to me, leave your sleep like Robitussin. I told people that if they have a teenage daughter, they need to sit her down and they need to watch this show with her. Can you tell us, because I was listening to your story and I read your story and I know your story from you. You don't seem like really far off from me or a lot of women that I know, except for, I, I don't know, were you um, claiming to be a gang member? But I know, oh, my dress is all crooked. I know that we all know gang members and bad boys, especially pretty girls. Mm-hmm. And we end up hanging out with them. So were you really that far gone or? Mm? Um, Man, when I was young, I did. I did. You know, um, I did. I, I was running with the people in the games. Um, it was it's heavy in San Diego. Um, I was out riding around in cars with gang members when I was 13, 14 years old. Okay. Um, I, but what is riding around in cars with gang members? Because I'm black, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. My cousins were gang members and I was riding around in cars with them too. Yeah. But were you were you active in the gang life? Because I wasn't active. But no, I, I, I wasn't really. I wasn't active. It was all like what you said. It was always the men. It was always the men that I messed around with when I was young um, that were doing the gang activity, and I was just there. Pretty girl um, caught up, right? And can you tell us about the pretty girl caught up story? Like what happened with you? What led you to doing your first bid in juvenile hall? Well, I think coming from a broken home, uh, like a a lot of us, uh, my story is so similar to a lot of other women out there. I came from a broken home. Um, My parents, when they were younger, were on drugs. Um, And uh, I think that contributed to me um, running to the streets for love and affection and attention when I was younger because I couldn't get it at home uh, because my parents were going through their own things. Um, so I lived with my mom most of the time when I was younger and, um, 
you know, she was on cocaine working three jobs, you know, trying to take care of everybody. Um, and, um, you know, uh, she didn't really uh, get her life together until after mine was already a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything had its purpose. Um, everything that I went through, everything my mom went through all had its purpose because she is a completely different person now. Um, and without her, I wouldn't be here today. Absolutely. So. And so guilty by association, Courtney, I don't know if you got to know any part of Amy's story, but Amy was out with her friends. One of her friends shot somebody and her little butt was in the mix. Mm-hmm. And what, what happened after that, Amy? Um, we became targets for the police department in that town. Um, anytime they seen us out anywhere, um, we became an, an immediate you know, factor, you know, what are they up to? Let's go see what they're doing. Um, all of my friends that were there that night, uh, we all ended up going to jail. Um, my friend, Daryl, he ended up going to jail for two years behind that incident. Um, thank God the man that he shot didn't die. Um, that man, I believe ended up paralyzed though. Um, and that was a really sad situation because it was something that didn't have to happen at all. None of us even expected that, um, but everybody in our circle of friends ended up in prison one way or another. Oh. What did you actually do time for? I, I did time. You know what? I did time because I honestly, um, I needed mental health treatment. I needed, I needed behavioral health and mental health treatment, but I got shoved into the juvenile justice system. Um, and, um, I think that's, uh, the lack of what our systems appropriately do for, for juveniles that need mental health or behavioral health treatment. Um, they just locked us up. Um, I think I was one of those juveniles that I just got shoved into the system because the system didn't have the appropriate care that I needed. Um, and they still don't to this day. There's so many kids that get shoved into ju- uh, juvenile justice systems that need mental health and behavioral health treatment. They don't need prison or jail. And your first bid was done in Texas, right? What was the name of the detention center? I went to Texas Youth Commission, and that was um, Brownwood State School. Um, that's where I went the first time. Um, and, and yeah. And that so. was a co-ed school at the time, right? Yes, that was a co-ed school. What do you think about young girls and young boys being kind of locked up in a detention center together? Um, It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I used to have male staff members uh, let boys into the bathrooms when I was going to the bathroom. Um, It's horrible. They shouldn't do it. There were boys in there for raping people. And, And they... The, the, the guards would let the male, the boy staff in there when I am trying to go to the bathroom and I'd have to negotiate, please don't, you know, I'm not the one you want to be with right now, you know? Um, and uh, it was hard. And then the staff would deny it and, and make us feel like we're lying. And, and we just feel so trapped and didn't like, how are we supposed to argue with these guards and staff trying to tell people, Hey, this is going on and nobody's believing us. So 
I'm sorry, Courtney, I'm not trying to monopolize it, but I just want to get these important questions really quickly. How long was your first bid at that detention center? Nine months. And was there sexual abuse while you were there to yourself? Did you suffer such at the hands of other, do you call juveniles inmates? Was it the hands yeah, of other juvenile? Inmates? Oh yeah, my gosh. I was beat up because I didn't want to date a girl. You know, um, I was beat up because I didn't want to date a girl, but um, I had to just, you know, you have to, you have to toughen up and, and let them know, you know, I didn't expect everything I went through in there, but it definitely opened my eyes. So your sexual assaults in, in that detention center, were mm -hmm. they other inmates or other inmates and guards? Inmates and guards. Yeah. I every see. juvenile, yeah, every single juvenile facility, something happened. Every single one. You got questions, Courtney? Or are you just in awe? Oh, uh, no, I really just have a comment right now. Um, it's funny. I was telling somebody that the American economy is based off of uh, criminal activity. You know, that's the reason why you, um, you never hear about lawyers or uh, even um, guards having layoffs. You know what I mean? Because it's set up. The system is set up based on crime. It's based on crime. You figure there's nowhere in America where a car can go 120 miles an hour, but every car you get is 100, goes 140, 160 miles per hour, and the speed limit is only 80, you know, 85. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like it's it, the American economy is based off of you trying to get away with something and the police trying to catch you and the FBI investigating you. It's, it, I tell my kids the same thing. I'm like, this, this is a game. It's, it's, it's a chess game that they have created. And I hate to sound woke to my kids, but it's like, yo, it's, it's, it's what it is. It's a game that they're trying to play. And you can easily, by making the wrong decision or getting in the wrong car, be part of their game. And, they won't, get, and they won't give you no help. You just end up being a tax write-off for them in their system. It's crazy. It's crazy. Because the detention centers that you were put in are private. Uh, well, at that time, I know that one has been repurchased uh, mm -hmm. by somebody else. But at that time, they're private facilities. So these are private prisons making money off of juveniles. Yep. Yep. Right. Because the states don't want to take the time and, and or say they have the resources or money to run them. And these private companies come in and say that they can do it for less. But at what cost? And it's still not working. So the first time you were in there, did you serve all nine months? Yes. Okay. So you, um, I don't know, what is it, what is it called when they let you out? They You get released. Okay. You yeah. got released. So tell us what happened after you got released. Um, after I got released, um, I went to California. I was in Texas. I went back home to California and um, I was doing okay for a while. Um, but my mother and I had more problems, um, which resulted in me running away again uh, back to Texas. And um, I ended up back in juvenile hall. What was the incident that landed you to do? the second 
bed in a different facility this time? Just violating my probation, violating my probation and leaving the state. Um, they put me back in there for another nine months. How did they know that you left the state? Uh, I was in high school. I was gone. I left school. Um, my mom let them know. Um, I, I just ran away again. I was like, forget it. You know, um, you know, it was uh, my home wasn't fixed yet. You know, they kept trying to fix me, but they weren't fixing my home. My home is what needed to, to be fixed. So basically violation of the probation and truancy. Yes. Is what landed you back into June. Okay, so the second detention center that you were put in has been renamed now. It's not even the same place anymore. Yeah, I don't even know if it's open anymore. Um, I I um I haven't even looked it up. Um I looked it up. I know it okay. the the man who owned it died, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was yeah. supposed to be repurchased in 2000. I don't know if it's open now though. Can you tell us what was the name of it then? Then it was the Coke County Juvenile Justice Center in Bront, Texas. Okay. Um, that's what it was called. The Coke County Juvenile Justice Center in Bront, Texas had contracted with Texas Youth Commission to house female juvenile delinquents. And it was supposed to be an amazing, luxurious facility that was supposed to fix all the little girls in our problems. That's what they told our parents. And this is where the nightmares truly started. Like, even though you had survived the sexual abuse in the first one, the yes. sexual abuse and the abuse in this one were intensive. Yes. This was more so guards at this facility. You were underage too, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 14, 14, 15. There were girls younger than me there. There was an 11-year-old there too. I remember. I couldn't even understand why an 11-year-old was there and they used to keep her in a locked room uh, where you had to, you know, open it up with the key. Um, and they kept that 11 year old little girl in that room. And I, I don't even remember her name. Um, I'm hoping that these videos that I'm starting to do now will help connect me to some of the girls that I was in there with so that we can reconnect. Um, you know, it's, I've been connecting with some of the girls, um, but I, I hope to, I hope these videos help me reach more of them. I, I hope they do too. And if they reach out to Trader's World Podcast, I will definitely do everything I can to get you in contact with them. I want to talk about how you said that you guys were told that this facility was like the dream place for you to be and how they cracked your spirit your first two days there. Oh, God, yes. Yes. Our first, like they hyped us up about going to this place and they got us all excited, even said the food was good. Um, all that was a lie. Uh, it was cafeteria style prison food, which was horrible. And um, they invited us in and it, it was a brand new facility. Everything was nice and shiny. Um, and they handed us paint brushes and they told us that we could paint our rooms, our cells, however we wanted. Um, and that really lit us up. We were so happy. Um, to be able to try to create a safe space and a creative environment that would allow us to heal. Um, you know, being creative helps people heal in so many ways. And, you know, they told us we could paint our rooms. So can you believe that all these hardcore juvenile delinquent girls, we were painting hearts and butterflies and beautiful things 
on our cell walls. And then the next day they came in and they told us whoever gave us permission to do that gave us wrong information and they made us repaint the walls white. And we were so sad. I mean, it was like they crushed our spirit. And it's like, it was, in, I don't know why they would have done that. It was like, they were trying to break us. Mm-hmm. I, that's what they were doing. They were trying to break us and they did. So day two, you were, I was a teenage girl. I wanted to paint my room too. And my mama wouldn't let me. So I could just imagine if I got to do it the way I wanted to, and she would have came and made me paint it back away. I'd have been hurt. Yes. It was horrible. I mean, that was the, we were painting outside. We couldn't see outside. So we were painting flowers and grass and, you know, like we were pretending that we were creating our own outside in our room and then they took it away. How long were you there before the abuse started? But that was already mental abuse, but before the physical abuse started. About two or three months, Um, two or three months went by and then um, that's when um, the guards were starting to get more comfortable with us. Mm-hmm. And um, when, you know, we would get mail or letters from our little boyfriends on the outside, um, the guys, the, the guards would read through our mail and then they would start making comments. And then that's how I believe that they started to figure out which girls they wanted to target because the girls who were talking sexual in letters must have knew what they were talking about and they wanted to see. So that's when, you know, we started getting um, harassed and, you know, hey, let me see this or do this. Or if you want your level, do this. Or if you want some McDonald's or some outside food, do this, you know. Um, and, you know, a bunch of abused girls in that kind of a situation being told to just do this by, people that were supposed to be above us. um, We just did what they wanted us to do. Um, We were used to being abused anyway. So it just was normal. Are these female guards or are these male guards? Male guards. They have male guards in a little girl's facility. Yeah. And some of these male guards were barely just to turn 21 themselves. Um, And they were from little bitty towns where education's low. There's not much going on. And these are bored men that are from little bitty towns and, you know, a predator's playground. Exactly. Little girls with no voices. Right. Um, I want to get personal. If it gets too personal, you tell me you don't want to go into details and I'm okay with that. Okay. But I think it's important for our viewers to know how extensive the abuse was. Was it, um, was it actual intercourse? I didn't have actual intercourse. I was fondled and kissed and rubbed on and stuff like that. Not that that's okay. Right. That's not okay. That doesn't make it any better. Right. Oh yeah. Um, No, I know. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah, but my my roommate, my cellmate was the one that was heavily abused, um, so much so that they had her on birth control. Um, and I was terrified of the guard that had a liking to her. And because of that guard, that's why I didn't come out of my room at night um, to even go to the bathroom, because you had to pass the guard station to go to the bathroom. And if he was there, I would just hold my pee all night because I was not about to let him touch me or even look at me. Um, so I would, 
do whatever I had to do to not have to make my way to the bathroom. And my roommate would always, um, it was like she sacrificed herself to save other girls. Sarah, right? I'm sorry, honey. Um, Courtney, I'm just going to let you know, Sarah, the girls all did a lawsuit after they were released. Um, they a settlement that they wouldn't take today if they would have known any better. That was two hundred thousand dollars each, right? Hey, you got to say and start, the day start everyone, over. I'm sorry, I said I'm. I'm just going to say Sarah was the name of her cellmate. Um, the girls, when they were released, they did a lawsuit. I believe there was eleven of them, mm-hmm. and they settled for two hundred thousand dollars each. Mm-hmm. Sarah was upset because she didn't want money. She wanted an apology. And the day they won the trial, Sarah took her own life. Mm-hmm. And that was Amy's roommate. Um, yeah. I'm so sorry, Amy. Amy, $200,000, that's all they gave That's all they gave us. That's it. That's crazy. But it was gone. We didn't even get that much, though, because the lawyers got half of that. And then tech, uh, whatever else. There were so many fees. By the time I got my money, it was only like 100000 something. Barely. What um, people don't know, when the United States government gives you money, you have to pay for the transaction fees for mm-hmm. them to give you money, even if it's just your money back. I know that from when they took my money, mm-hmm. when my money was wrongfully taken. I had to pay mm-hmm. transaction fees for the United States government to give me back my money. So um, you said that you were fondled and yes. things like that. Were you forced to give fellatio or... I? I I kind of just want people to have a picture. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the only thing um, about this particular guard at that facility that that bothered me was um, he forced me to give him my mother and grandmother's address. Um, he wanted to know where I was being released to, where I was going. He was telling me he was going to leave his family and come out to California and be with me. Um, And his wife was calling up there, harassing me, asking me, why am I ruining her husband's life when I was not doing anything? It was not me that was doing this. It was, um, you know, he's the one that dropped the (laughs) love. Excuse me. He's the one that dropped the letter in town that a coworker found. And that's how everybody even found out about what was going on there because, um, Again, we were just doing what we wanted, what we had to do to get home. We were doing whatever they wanted us to do. So but, she um, kind of skipped over it a little bit. I mean, I'm just going to go back for you, okay? Um, I was asking about the the, the sexual um, okay. advances and the assault that happened towards her. She skipped it over and said what really bothered me was because oh. as an abused person, it hurts to relive those memories. But he told her that he would kill her sister and kill her grandmother and kill her mother if she ever told what happened to her while she was there. So he was threatening her, but she had a guard who was completely infatuated with her, wrote a love letter to her and dropped it in the store. Somebody found the letter at the store and took it to the detention center themselves because it was so bothersome. Mm-hmm. And took it to, I don't know if it was like a PO or the director of the center, right? Yeah, it was the director of the facility. And mm-hmm. what happened when um, 
they got that letter, the director of this facility called you in, right? Yeah, I, they come and they restrain me like I did something wrong. And I was a model inmate. Um, I didn't do anything for anybody to, you know, uh, I didn't break the rules. You know, I followed the rules they set for me. Um, but uh, they restrained me, brought me to the officer or the, the d- director's office. And then she started um, just drilling me and making me feel bad. Um, and telling me all these things about why am I ruining this man's life? And, um, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't even know that I didn't know anything. Then I find out later that they found the letter that somebody dropped a letter that he dropped a letter and she read it to me. And in that letter is when it, it, it said that he, you know, he was wanting my addresses where I'm going to, he was going to leave his family and all this stuff. And um, I, in, in order to not be hurt um, forcefully, um, what I did is I just played along with him wanting to be my boyfriend while I was locked up. Um, that's what I did. I didn't want to be hurt. I didn't want to be forcefully hurt. So I gave him kisses, hugged him, touched him, and let him touch me, you know, things like that. But he never raped me. Um, but the other guard, um, Sarah used to call him pizza face, um, because that's what his, his face looked like. Um, she would keep him busy at night to save anybody else from getting abused. And how old were you? 14, 15, 13. It's almost like I'm at a loss for I have so much to say and nothing to say at all because I'm a mother. Mm-hmm. So the anger in me is building up inside of me that these are grown men. And these are men that you're, as a parent, you're thinking, maybe this is going to save my kid's life, right? Because my kid is mm-hmm. going down the wrong track. Maybe this will make her turn around and see life a different way and want to get out and go the straight and narrow. Not Do me. not. No, this is this is like a cry out to parents. Do not leave the state to raise your children. Nope. No. Nobody can raise your child better than you can raise your child. Okay, so let's let's talk about your release, right? Mm-hmm. You did nine months this time as well. Yeah, I did nine months that time, um, and they didn't release me back to my family. I actually got released to a girl's home in Houston, Texas, in Third Ward, um, and it was called Nikki's Girl's Home. And um, at that time, um, I uh, was pretty much on my own. Um, The Nikki's Girl's Home was a transitional living house for girls who had been in the system that um, wanted to do independent living, Um, you know, and and I thought that was great because obviously it wasn't working back home. You know, again, I was scared that if I went back home, something, you know, me and my mom weren't going to get along again or something was going to happen that was going to put me back in a situation where I ended up incarcerated. And so um, I ended up going to Nikki's Girl's Home. But while I was at the girls' home, um, I uh, found out that I was pregnant. Um, and um, then a whole nother situation happened um, after the fact. Um, and but with me being a ward of the state, 
um, I had to do everything I possibly could to prove that I could keep my baby. Um, and, and I did, I did whatever I could to keep my baby, uh, pregnant, walking around in third ward at 15, 16 years old, uh, working at Popeye's chicken, frying chicken till the day I, I had my baby just to prove to these people that I could keep a job and be a mother to my daughter. And, and I was able to do that. Your daughter's father was not somebody who worked at the home. No, no, he was not. He, um, he was, um, my childhood sweetheart, my, my, my love growing up. Um, and, um, really, you know, my life has been plagued by incarceration. Um, my daughter's father, one month after my daughter was born, um, my friend who shot somebody in front of us, uh, was in the car with him and his girlfriend. My daughter's father was driving. He was drunk. Um, that car ended up uh, in an accident and Daryl, the guy who shot that guy in front of us, ended up flying out of the car and dying that night. Um, And so did his girlfriend. Um, And my daughter's father ended up going to prison for 20 years for intoxication manslaughter. So um, I went directly from being, you know, um, I got out and, you know, got pregnant and then my daughter's father went in. Um, and then I was left all by myself with a baby in third ward. Wow. So you were able to raise your daughter, mm-hmm. get out of the system. And now she's doing well, y'all. But I'm have, doing better. <laughs> I'm doing so, better. You're doing better. Did Were you able to ever get some help, like some mental help, some counseling uh, while you were raising your baby? Lots of it. I got lots of counseling. That's, that's what's helped me this far. Um, but oh, <laughs> Sherry, it doesn't stop there. It does not stop there. Um, I wanted to tell you that um, I named my daughter Sarah after my friend Sarah. Um, my daughter's name is Sarah. And um, my own daughter, um, I, because of everything I had been through, I had become an advocate for criminal justice system issues. I had a magazine back in the day called Inmate and Family Magazine. I had an online presence. I used to go march and help try to change laws and write bills and um, do some amazing things. Um, and uh, all while I was raising my daughter, you know, fighting for criminal justice system issues because her father was incarcerated. And then sadly, my daughter started to go through some of the same issues that I did when I was a teenager. Um, she, um, I was trying to do everything I could to not have her go down that path. But um, she went from being Miss Teen San Diego County um, to now my daughter is in prison. Um, my own daughter um, has been in prison since 2015. Hopefully she's coming home this October. Um, and she's in prison because her best friend killed her drug dealing rapist. So my own daughter, it's a, it's a cycle I'm trying to break. And I feel like, um, because I've been so hush hush about these bad things and these miscarriages of the system that I've been through, I'm doing a disservice to people by not sharing my story because more people need to hear my story so that the system can be improved. Um, somehow my daughter got caught up in it and ended up in the system just like I did, but she went to real prison as soon as she turned 18 years old. 
And um, she, it was really even more sad is that my daughter and her father have only touched each other through prison doors. Like they got to hold hands once through a prison door. And my daughter went to prison six months before her dad got out of his 20 year sentence. So it's in, it's in, it's, it's insane that I've been literally plagued by incarceration. And I've been so afraid to talk about these things because they are shameful. It's embarrassing. Um, it's vulnerable. Um, but uh, people need to know how serious of an, a problem incarceration and recidivism is so that we can really put an end to it. And, and then, um, you know, out of all these bad things that have happened, good things are happening too. Um, I feel like I, I am a change maker and the people that I do get the opportunity to share my story with, I do inspire them to keep going. And, and I need to just be comfortable telling more people. Um, so that I can help more people because I didn't go through these things to not help someone else. Um, so I know that was a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Mike, I have two questions for you. One, are you and your daughter's father back together now that he's home? I married him when he got out. We got married when he got out. And um, two years after that, it just, um, uh, I kept trying and trying and, um, I believe he has post-incarceration syndrome, which is PTSD for people that have been in prison. Yeah. Um, he's, he's paranoid. He thinks everybody's out to get him, and, um, he's very competitive and he thinks I'm trying to, um, run his life when I was just trying to guide him. You know, and I had to give him some space to do what he has to do um, so he can grow into a man out here yeah. because he yeah. never had that opportunity. Um, we're still married, um, but we've been separated since 2018. Thank you for sharing that, because that's like, that's something intimate. But I don't think that people think about that. The rehabilitation of family once incarceration yes. is involved is something that's never talked about. Never. And let me tell you this. I never thought it would happen to me. And I used to always go around talking to people about this. I used to speak at Mothers Against Drunk Driving meetings. And sadly, I used to always tell people 80% of children who have an incarcerated parent end up in prison themselves. I never thought that it would be my daughter. And it is. I know those are the hardest conversations that you have with her while she's behind those walls. Yes. Um, do you get to speak with her on a regular basis? Yes. She calls all the time. Um, she calls all the time. The first few years was really hard. It was so rough. She was suicidal. Um, women in there are very mean. Um, it's not a place for a young girl to go at all. And she was so naive to the real world. Um, I tried to shelter her and protect her. Um, but she had to grow up in there and she is a little dynamite woman now. Um, I love her to death. Um, she sometimes counsels me, you know, she's my best friend. My daughter is my best friend. She helped raise me. Um, I, I've, um, I, again, without my mother and without my daughter, I wouldn't be who I am today. Um, and I can't wait for my daughter to come home because 
um, I know she has a great life ahead of her and that there's purpose in all of this. There's purpose in all of this for our entire family. And um, are we able uh, to show her picture? Can we, can we put her picture? Yes. Yes. And how much longer does she have to go before she comes home? Hopefully in October, she'll be coming home. I'm working on a project right now. I tag a lot of her old pictures, saving Sarah project, because that's what I'm doing. Like right now it's all about saving Sarah. It's I'm saving Sarah. And that's the project I'm working on. Um, you know, she is a project. My daughter is a project. Of course. You know, it takes a lot of my time, effort, and energy. And even for her dad too, um, it's been a real, something a lot of people didn't realize and something I was very upset about. Um, and I don't know if anyone that watches this video might share this too, but it was very hard on my daughter's father when our daughter went to prison. Um, mm -hmm. It made us both feel like a big failure. Um, and it hurts him so bad that even though he did 20 years, and even though me and my daughter broke our backs to do whatever we could to keep money on his books, he can't even bring himself to write her letters. Uh, and it's sad because she needs him. But that's part of his pain and part of what he still hasn't healed from. He can't even go visit her. Um, it hurts him too bad. And, and I, I, at first, I hated him. I, I was like, how can you not be here for her? when you went through all of this. And um, I have to remember that he's gone through a lot of traumas in there as well. And it's hard for him to understand or even fathom that his own daughter ended up in there too. You know, it's crazy. I was um, telling um, some kids, my kids too, that, and I heard this and you tell me if you agree, but they said like when the kids take a test, this, this some kind of standardized test in school, the system looks at these numbers and they start building prison cells based on these numbers. This is what I heard. Um, I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it at all. Um, you know what? You'd be surprised if you look at some of our favorite influencers and our favorite people that they invest in the prison system. Some of our favorite. Oh, man, I, I, I would want to put myself is, on blast. Is Michael Jordan one of them? No. That was a that was a lie. That's another Michael Jordan. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Give me another um, one. I, I, you know, I um, I, I, you know, I don't. I've been a target. I don't. I'm tired of being a target. I hear you. But whisper to me. I'll say it. <laughs> All right. We'll look it up. We, you know what? That's something we can look up and, and put a list out there and show people who invest in prison systems. Why don't people invest in treatment? Let me tell you why my daughter ended up in prison. I tried to put my daughter in seven different rehab centers and we had TRICARE through the military insurance. We had TRICARE. They would not approve a residential treatment stay for my daughter. A drug dealer got my daughter hooked on crack. Yeah, that's what I'm she was working. I got, I, I thought it would be a good idea for her to stay busy after school and get a job at Sonic. Yeah. What did she do while she got that job at Sonic? Met a drug dealer who kept coming by, giving her drugs and big tips. And then before I knew it, my daughter's running away with the drug dealer. Now the drug dealer's dead and my daughter's in prison. Wow. And I tried to get the police to arrest him and, and lock him up and get him off the streets. He had 14 cocaine felonies already 
His brother was a bail bondsman who's known for sleeping with women uh, to get him out of jail who don't have money. Um, and he was, and the guy who's deceased now was a low level drug informant for the area. So he was already working with the police and they didn't care that he was raping my daughter. And now so, he's dead and my daughter's in prison. Wow. So it seems like it was all like a setup. Yeah. He was an informant. Oh. Yeah. Um, it, I got a stupid question, but I really, I really want to ask this and, and it don't even have to be for the show. Cause I got a daughter and, it, and, and I got a wife and, and this, this stuff means something to me. So after all that abuse, I know, and I hope this don't sound stupid. That's why I said it's not even for the show. I just mm -hmm. curious after all that abuse, um, in, in that prison, how, how did you even like, man, how did you even want to have sex to even have the baby? Um, that sounds stupid, Cherry. I'm sorry. I just really no. I get it. No, I I get it. Um, because the love for my daughter's father was always already there, um, and I would run back to him for comfort. He was who comforted me. He's who protected me from my mom when me and my mom would get into fights. I understand that love, but I'm talking about so, like the, the, the touch. Yeah. Like if he did, did that, they would remind you of what whatever went on in there. Like. Like, how do you get like, intimate with someone and then after being abused the same way? I don't know. I'm just trying to figure it out. You know what? I, I'm about to share a vulnerable truth with you guys that I don't think I've ever shared with Does much it, do, do you want this for the show or not? Because I don't have to be. I, I will. I, I'll say this. I will say this. I, I will say this for the show. Um, I've been molested by white men and Hispanic men as a young girl. And... Um, as an adult, I can't date a white or Hispanic man. I, I've been, I've stuck with African-American men my whole life because they didn't abuse me when I was young. And people always ask me, why do you not like white guys? Why do you not date other than black guys? You know, why do you always date black guys? Because when I was young, the black guys didn't abuse me. It was the white men and the Mexican men that abused me. And, and inside myself, um, I just can't bring myself to want to even be sexual with a white man or a Hispanic man. See, that makes sense. That makes sense. Courtney, you know, most people who are hypersexual or provocative in their teen years, it's because there was some kind of molestation or abuse, or there was a predator in their life. So the people that, that are out there having the most sex most of the time in their early years, it's because they were abused. No, no, I get that. But what I, I, I guess it was just hard for me to understand until she explained it. You know, like, I guess after being nine months abused, sexually abused, the last thing I would be thinking about would be sex, you know, but. Well, it wasn't nine months. It was 18 months because it was two wow. separate times. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. I just wanted to, I didn't want to know how that worked, but now I understand, you know, certain people. It it does. It took a lot of healing. Um, and now as a woman who's gone through a lot of therapy, um, I have a different level of compassion for people. I love on a different level. Um, all my connections have to be mental. Um, I get real turned off when people are just hypersexualized. Um, but I'm also in an industry career wise that has always been full of hypersexual activity and other things. 
What industry um, is that? Yeah, I was gonna say, tell them what you do. Tell them what you do. <laughs> okay, so now um, I I do I, I kind of do two things. I, I'm in the mortgage business, but I've always been in the music business as well. So um, moving to Atlanta, I was able to, everybody I know that loves me told me, you need to go to Atlanta because Atlanta is where you can be everything that you are. So I moved to Atlanta to be everything that I am. And it's been rough because they're really cliquish out here. Mm. They, poof, they're cliquish. But um, I'm able to do both my music and my mortgages. Um, I work for a record label out of Houston, Texas, um, the Chop Not Slot. Uh, label with OG Ron C and the Chop Stars. Um, I'm a business development manager and I help get new contracts and bring new business to the table um, for events and sponsors and things like that. Um, and I also do mortgages for people that have creative income. Um, for ever since I was young, I've been trying to get my friends in the music industry to understand how important it is to invest in homes instead of the other things they were doing. Nobody wanted to listen to me, but now we're in a financial literacy movement and, and there's an awakening in the world right now within the urban culture. And now my friends are like, hey, remember when you were telling me how to flip houses and how to do all this other stuff? And, and so now it's finally starting to all come together. And I really pride myself in being somebody that people know for a fact. I've been here to support entertainers and DJs my whole life. Strippers too. Um, they need houses. They, whatever it is you want to do in life, you need a stable foundation in order for you to be able to focus on your craft full time without having to worry about if your rent's going to be paid or not. And rent keeps going up. Mm -hmm. So I'm so blessed that out of everything I've been through, somehow it got me here and I'm doing what I love. And a lot of people don't understand that entertainers were paid different because we don't get a paycheck every two weeks. It's a lot harder for us to go in a bank and get a loan because we might get a lump sum, but they like seeing a steady flow of cash in and out, in and out, in and out. And we don't always have that unless we're taught how to play the game. So we need to do things like... Um, what is it called? Uh, bank statement loans and things yes. like that so that we can get a mortgage because we can't just walk in a regular mortgage company and get a mortgage like everybody else. Yeah. So, so I pride myself in being someone that uh, does mortgages for creatives. You know, um, there was so many people that are in entertainment, even film crew members. They, they get 1099s too. They yeah. couldn't even refinance the homes that they already own after COVID, yeah. you know, because you, we can't accept unemployment as a form of income. So there were so many people that wanted to buy houses that couldn't and even refinance the houses that they had when rates were amazingly low because they, they were laid off during COVID. And, and it's if hard. somebody wants to reach out to you, because I know my industry homies is going to be like, yo, how I get in touch with Amy. <laughs> Yay, you? please That's do. For your services. Yes. Oh, well, I am on the internet. You can find me on Instagram um, at the underscore mortgage underscore mermaid. Or you can just Google my name, Amy Broadnecks, and I'm sure my LinkedIn will come up. And we're going to attach all that stuff in there because I want them to know how to find you. Thank you so much, Sherry. You're welcome, Ruski. <laughs> what else you got for court? Uh, so how did you, um, what made you even want to, like, how did you even go from what, what the situation you were in to 
situation you're in now? Like what made, what was the turnaround for you? Um, I, uh, wow. In 2018, when it didn't work out with me and my dad, uh, my daughter's father, um, I tried to commit suicide. I did. I actually died. Um, I died. Um, the hospital was going to take me off life support. And um, the only reason that I am alive is because my mother did not allow them to. And um, thank God I started to breathe and everything on my own. Four days later, um, even though they told my mom that I wasn't going to make it, I made it. And um, I think I died to everything in my past that during that time. Um, when I woke up and realized that I was alive, I had a talk with God in my head. I couldn't even speak. Um, I tried to speak to people and they said it was just gibberish. Nobody could understand what I was saying, but I was telling people, oh my God, you know, there really must be some purpose for my life. I'm here for a reason. I am not dead. I cannot believe I'm here. And I was so upset with myself, but I knew that, that I had purpose and I had to be here. And that's when, when I decided that um, I have this thing on my wall here. It says, I can and I will watch me. And when people don't understand why my fight is so hard, it's because I've been through things that other people haven't been able to survive. And so when, when people, when I come to people with ideas or when I come to people with solutions and they tell me that can't be done, can't isn't something that's in my vocabulary. I have that crazy faith kind of stuff going on because I've been, a, been blessed by the crazy faith. I'm still here and I shouldn't be. And I know it's because I make a difference. I'm supposed to be here, not just for myself. Um, I really feel like my purpose is to be here to help other people's lives be better. And, and that's, that's what I'm here for. Um, I, I get, I get so, um, I know I'm saving lives. I, I know I'm saving lives because people who I've, I've saved lives, they come to me and they tell me I've saved their life. That's my reward. That's why I'm here. That's my, 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 um, I, I'm, I'm not here for me. I'm here for others. And that's what I do know. When are you writing your book? Soon. I should soon. I've been, I've been writing. I, I have been writing. Um, but um, I've been afraid to say all these things. I've been afraid and um, I'm finally coming out of my shell. And um, I think I definitely owe the world a book because um, my story is important. And I don't ever want anybody to forget about Sarah Lowe or the girls in the Cope County Juvenile Justice Facility or the boys and girls who are still incarcerated now that are being molested, raped and abused. Um, I, I want to share all these issues that I faced as a mother with a daughter who had a drug problem um, because my daughter shouldn't have never been to prison. She needed residential drug treatment and the insurance company would not um, approve it. And so before I die, one thing I want to do is I want to get a, a federal bill passed um, that forces drug treatment, residential drug treatment for anyone under the age of 25. Because if scientists can say, and they've, they've said to us, they've proven 
that a brain isn't fully developed until age 25, um, then why the heck hasn't all the, haven't all these insurance companies paid for rehab, residential drug treatment for children or anyone under the age of 25? Why are they sending people to prison under the age of 25 who needed mental health treatment? Wow. You know, I'm, um, I'm going to put you on the spot because I didn't know that you've been writing, but I teach this class, right? About like how to write a book in 30 days. Oh my God. What if you and I go through the exercises and get that book done? I would love to. I would love to. Will you come back when it's available and we'll talk about it? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. I got it on record. So I got backup. You know what? I just needed encouragement and help. I've been, I I needed encouragement and help. I, um, you know, even people in my own family that know what I've been through are embarrassed to hear me talk about these things. You know, they, they look at it as something that's embarrassing, not a strength. And I'm having to force myself to, to understand that it, it, it takes strength to be this vulnerable. Yeah. And I want to be, I'm putting myself out here so that like what, what you said in the beginning, we got to warn our, our young moms and the daughters out there, you know, these, these places that say they help your kids, they don't help your kids. Hey, can, I, can I ask you a question about that? Um, Cause like, like it's no way that you could have just like a doctor couldn't have just did it, wrote it out anyway. And then, then you know, I mean, can't go to jail for not paying a medical bill. Yeah. Well, for the residential treatment stays, um, the facilities that my daughter was at all wanted to verify through the insurance that a residential treatment stay was approved and the max that they ever approved my daughter for was, I believe, in 90 days. Now, what kind um, of other than that, it was 30. TRICARE through the military. TRICARE for life. My, my ex-husband was in the Navy. Um, I, I, I did end up getting married. That didn't work out. And then that's why I waited on my daughter's father to get out of prison because I wasn't going to be walking around with two, three baby daddies. So, so, you, so you, were under, you were under their insurance, under military insurance. Yeah. So don't yeah. the military have facilities too? Not like that. Uh, they do for like veterans. Yeah, but um, for veterans family. they do, but not for children. You know, mm-hmm. um, they they had insurance, and the insurance would never approve, no matter how hard I fought for her to get a residential six to nine months treatment. They would never approve it. They only did thirty days at a time. And my daughter went through so many unbelievable things. Um, I really am mad. I'm, I'm mm. mad For real. at the insurance companies. For real. Mad. That's another, that's another scam part of the game. You know, it's like mm-hmm. insurance. It's, they're, all, they're all, they're all people just, this, this, it's a big game. It's all it is, a big game. It is. They make you pay all that money for insurance, and then when you need them, you know, you use them too many times, they'll drop you. Right. This bullshit. I'm yeah. sorry you had to go through all that. Thank you so much. I appreciate I, it. I love both you guys for being so candid, so honest, and so pure. Amy, thank you so much for being vulnerable. Thank okay. You. And thank you so much for just being honest and pure and telling your story. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. You know, I I realized though, um, all those years that I kept all these things away from people, 
um, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was getting all the success that I, I should have gotten. But lately, I've been being me 100% of the time, wherever I go. And crazy things are starting to happen. You know, things are starting to work out for me because I feel like um, everybody's so focused on being perfect and, and hiding what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, being vulnerable and putting myself out there, letting people know that I've been somewhere where most people wouldn't even be able to pull themselves out of is making people feel more comfortable about coming to me and sharing with me the things they've been through that have prevented them from being successful in their life, whether it be financial or career or whatever, or even with their daughters. I just had another incident with one of my friends who had an incident with her daughter in a daycare facility. So, I mean, there's, um, you know, um, as moms, everybody we need to communicate more we need to talk more Mm -hmm. we need to share all of these things that go wrong wherever they happen so that we can start fixing them and quit sweeping them under the rug um because we all have a lot more in common than we think and please don't let those imperfect people make you feel that you're not perfect because you are imperfectly you thank you okay and i love you and i'm proud of you and you damn sure inspire me thank you so much here